0: I'm James Hoog, and this is Outside the Glass. Outside the Glass is brought to you by squashproshop.com, our source for equipment for racquetball, badminton, paddle tennis, and of course, squash. They carry a great selection of squash equipment from all the top manufacturers at the lowest prices rackets and shoes, balls and bags, goggles and grips. They've got it all, and they offer fast and free shipping on orders over $25 best selection of prices and service on the internet, visit squashproshop.com. So this is our 25th episode of Outside the Glass. It's been an amazing couple of years. Uh, We've really had a wonderful time interviewing, talking with, having uh, really deep and and fascinating conversations with people all around the world. This uh, upcoming uh, episode here is another example of that. Mike Lewis left his job in Boston and headed out on the pro tour. It's a really neat story. Uh, When he uh, came back a couple years ago, he uh, started thinking about um, what he had done and um, created a whole movement around people who are contemplating changing careers, following their dreams. Uh, It's called When to Jump. And he's got a book out uh, called When to Jump. The book's got 44 different uh, essays from uh, lots of people uh, around the world uh, who have uh, decided to to jump and change careers. So enjoy.
1: So we're here with Mike Lewis uh, on the outside of the glass. Mike, tell us about how you
2: started playing squash. You were out in, in California, in Santa Barbara. Yep, exactly. My uh, my dad actually learned the game when he was on the naval base as a surgeon in Newport, Rhode Island. And I was born in New York and kind of, you know, can't really remember it. I was just a few years old. My dad would take me around to the courts. He he found squash, like I said, later in life, but always encouraged me. And it wasn't until we moved a couple times and ended up in Santa Barbara, California, where I really fell in love with the sport. I was around 13 years old, and there was a handful of courts that, probably the only squash courts within 100 miles or so of our, of our town or at least the only squash club officially. And uh that's where it all started. And uh, Robert
1: Gran was your uh was the pro
2: there. Yep, Robert was the pro. He had been coaching and giving uh lessons and running the squash program for, you know, adult players. There weren't really any other juniors. Uh, there was a couple here and there, but no no real program and nothing serious. Um but along with Robert there was uh, Debbie Brown, uh, who mm-hmm. would later became an, um, an age group champion, and Jason Jewell, an All-American uh, at Princeton in 96, and a couple other top-level players who, you know, really together kind of gave me a great um, uh, community and, and kind of home away from home, which I actually talk about in my book a bit, which is, you know, really what uh, I credit for having as an outlet and, and a guiding post for, for getting better at squash. Right, right.
1: uh, When you were a junior, were you traveling around the country to play junior tournaments? Uh, You know, some some, uh, kids who live in the East Coast or the hotbed of of squash in America, they, you know, have a lot of tournaments right at their fingertips. But uh, what was it like for you um, out in Southern California?
2: Yeah, it was unique. I remember, uh, you know, and I should probably step back and say none of this would have ever been possible if it wasn't, you know, for the support and unyielding enthusiasm and patience from my father. Um, we really were not, uh, at, you know, on the circuit, if you were to say uh, in those terms where the junior tournaments were. As you said, they were largely, you know, in the backyards of, of other juniors in Greenwich or outside Philly, in Boston, New York, etc. cetera. Um, I remember a lot of long trips and and really not a lot of wins for the first few years that I started. You know, I was quote, unquote, late to the game in uh, picking up the sport as I was, uh, you know, starting high school or, you know, wrapping up junior high, starting high school. And the closest tournaments, I remember there was four or five of us in the San Francisco Bay Area Junior Tournament. You know, it's a far cry from the hundreds of entries today. Uh, I would go to the West, uh, to the Midwest and, and end up playing alongside my former teammate, Nick Sosodia, we were two of four or five kids in the Midwestern Junior Championships. And I was going to these places uh, because they were the closest tournaments I could find. And we only had limited time and resources to go out and play. So it was uh, it was slim pickings in the beginning. And every so often I'd, I'd go play the Princeton Juniors and get my butt
1: kicked. <laughs> yeah, it's not fun to travel all the way across the country when you're a kid and then, you know, have a quick match and be done.
2: <laughs> exactly. I remember that was the hardest part was being at a tournament and feeling guilt. You know, I felt that my dad had sacrificed a lot of time and energy to get us out there. And and, and many of those early tournaments were not, quote unquote, successful. It was it was only after several years where I felt like it was starting to, to come together. But uh, I really credit my dad for, for being there for me as we started.
1: Uh, and then you went to Darvis, So tell tell us about uh, being up in Hanover and, and playing some big Green. Well, as you know, it was
2: a life changing experience being there as a student athlete. Uh, from a a purely individual human personal perspective, it was so enriching to be around such smart uh, classmates and interesting professors. And of course, being so isolated it made it all the more intimate. It was there was literally nowhere to go. Maybe the Connecticut River, but but not much further than that. And so everything was just so stimulating to me, uh, challenging courses, really interesting people, and then of course the squash was phenomenal. Uh, it was my first team, truly team organized squash experience. So to have ten beautiful courts and world class coaches and other juniors, you know, our former junior players around me, uh, I just treasured it. I couldn't couldn't get enough of it.
1: So when you uh uh got there, John Power, uh John John Senior was the uh was the coach there, um, what was that like uh working with him?
2: Well I had actually met John indirectly through his son Jonathan, who was as as everyone knows, I'm sure listening to the show, a world champion and, and a real legend, and he hosted his first camp ever in Hanover because his dad was was the coach and had obviously access to the courts and the dorms, et cetera. And it was a three-week program. I think it was the summer of my sophomore year going into junior year. And I credit that program, one, with discovering Dartmouth, but two, with getting to really see what the competition was like if I was to play at the next level. And got to meet John there, stayed in close touch, you know, really uh, felt like that was the beginning of, of, of a great relationship. And, you know, John was there for the first few years when I when I got to Dartmouth, and you know, really a good guy and and a nice person and and hardworking. And uh, you know, he he to me was was a big you know part of the puzzle. I was you know felt very proud to get to go play for him.
1: Right. Um, and then um, and then Hansi uh, came in for the last few years. Hansi Weems
2: yep so uh, right before junior year i believe uh hansi was well hansi had joined with me as the assistant uh right. his first year was my first year, and then he became the head coach halfway through
1: exactly right
2: right, right.
1: um so one one of the things that uh your story i think is uh makes it so appealing squash wise is that you're sort of an everyman um you know you weren't uh you know world junior champion and, and and uh so do you know do you remember what your sort of ranking was in high school like how like like how how what was your best you know uh, the rankings were were pretty different uh, 10 years ago but you know do you remember what what you were specifically as a junior in high school
2: yeah well first of all i mean to really give you a throwback i I don't think I was- I don't think I had enough tournaments to be officially ranked till sophomore year, uh-huh. and I think I might have been top fifty and then, like I said, that camp before junior year the pieces started coming together, I was growing I was getting stronger, I was playing better, you know but junior year I probably was you know maybe ten or fifteen twenty spots better, and then I think it wasn't really until you know the fall or winter of my senior year where um you know I stepped it up, but even then you know I think I might have been. Twenty. I was probably a top 20 player in the rankings, right. and and of my of my uh. peer group going to college in our recruiting class, I was probably yeah I was a you know top certainly wasn't top five or, or ten recruit, but maybe right. in the top 20. You know I I was you know I was in the in the you know top picks of Dartmouth, but certainly wasn't. Yeah, well, like you said, wasn't a junior champion, wasn't making quarterfinals, semifinals, finals of a lot of tournaments. In fact, I think the best tournament I ever had was one of my last ones, which was my nationals of senior year. I remember beating a couple guys who kind of, you know, were always better than me. And I think a couple heads turned, um, mostly just probably my own and my dad. But I think that was the beginning where it felt like the pieces were really clicking. And ironically, it was at the end of my junior career.
1: <laughs> right, All right. And then at Dartmouth, you you where, where did you sort of play each
2: year, or where, you know how how high did you end up on the on the on the ladder? Well, I actually ended up in the same spot just about every year. I was play I played number four. Mm-hmm. Uh, my goal was to be in the top ten, as you know, the top ten guys travel. I just thought that would be amazing, and I think I you know surprised myself for sure, and and perhaps surprised Coach Power at the time, and ended up in the you know, at the fourth spot and then, you know, really fought hard just to, to hold on to it. Our team just got better and better each year. We brought in guys like Chris Hansen and Custodia and others. And so I felt very proud just to hold on to kind of playing right around number four each year and you know and took great pride in being captain senior year.
1: So, you know, that that's a career that, you know, is pretty good and and, and you know, he played on the, on a team uh that was in the top ten in the country. Uh, every year, and uh, you know, really solid uh, top program, but you know, you weren't number one at you know the number one school in the country. So at some point, you had to have a um, you know kind of a different vision. Like I'm going to turn pro, and I'm going to you know it's you know I you know what 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 made you think okay, you know I'm number four at Dartmouth, but I still I, I have some potential and. And I have this sort of almost this need to to go out and and, and try the pro tour. So um, you mentioned this in your book,
2: but what, what has clicked over for you? Like what what made you think, okay, oh, I'm gonna take it to the level? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that's actually where the book comes in. Is that I I felt as I graduated, I was still getting better. As I mentioned, I had a late start to the game, and so by the time I graduated in the spring of 2011, and then in the fall of 2011 moved to uh, to Boston and started playing at the University Club there. It was right next, literally next door to my office. I found that my game was still getting better from, from my own ranking set, at least. I wasn't necessarily going to be a national champion, but I was I was getting better. And to me, it felt like, well, if I'm getting better, and in some ways I had less distractions than I had in college, I didn't have courses and other stuff. I did a job. But outside of that, I thought, could I just keep pushing on the squash piece and see if I could get better. And as I got better, I thought, okay, well, this is great, but, you know, if I really want to play the pro squash tour, which was a dream of mine for a long time, uh, I needed to get better. As my dad, you know, was candid and telling me also needed to find sponsors. I needed to taste what the tour would be like. And I think psychologically I didn't want to just give up a job I'd worked hard to get. I felt like why not put in some time and, you know, see if I could do both via, a venture capitalist during the day, I guess, and uh, and at night play the pro squash tour.
1: Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing, um, and I I love the idea of being a late bloomer. Um, you know, picking up the game at thirteen—that's actually when I started playing as well. And you know, uh, yeah, it's sort of. You know, there's there's never it's never too late to pick up the game and and pursue it and you know take it you know take it as far as it will take you. Oh, totally. Yeah. You, you mentioned in the book about uh, being in um, uh, Bucharest uh, in Romania, and and uh, and so tell, tell us all the what happened with that. This was when you were in college.
2: Yeah, so it was my junior year, and at that point I was loving squash and I was loving how global the sport was. And for fun, I would keep a spreadsheet of all the people I knew in different places. And the list ended up getting pretty long, and by junior year, I had an internship, like a work exchange in Zurich, Switzerland. But what I said was, okay, why don't I just bet on myself to use squash as this compass and spend, I think it was two two weeks, maybe 10 days, two weeks, traveling on my own just with my rack, and I would have a, a very loose set of goals of what I'd accomplish or where I was going. But I, at that point, I had interned in Beijing the year before. I had found squash work there. I played in Singapore and Hong Kong. It felt like, why not just see what what could happen? And a funny story, actually, that came from this, which uh, which I mentioned in the book, too, is it was never supposed to be Bucharest. That was never on the list. But I met a couple of Kiwis who, it was my first night, I'll never forget, I was eating a huge piece of schnitzel, schnitzel and having a beer, And it was my first night in Vienna at a hostel, and I kind of thought, what the heck am I doing here? Uh, I have no real plans. I'm on my own. And then next to me pulls up a couple uh, very friendly Kiwis who were teachers traveling to see their friend and and classmate or something like that or or, a fellow teacher who lives in Romania. And it was their spring break, and they were going to do it. They invited me to come along. I said, sure. So we ended up traveling together and I played a bit while I was on the tour in different places or while I was on the, the trains in different places in Prague and other spots like that. And then ended up finding myself in Bucharest with these, you know, now friends uh, who really said, you know, okay, well, we're going to go see our friend um, to visit with him, But if you'd like to look around for squash courts, go for it. So I went and searched for courts and in the basement of, you know, a hotel gym, found two of probably the only courts in Bucharest, Romania, and ended up getting asked to play with two guys who were finishing up a couple games and ended up beating one of the guys and then the other guy. And then the club owner was watching, and he said, well, why don't you stay here, live in Romania for a bit, we'll teach you the world of Eastern Europe and our lifestyle here, and in return, you can show us what it is to be a, a squash player and coach us. And at that time, I thought, holy crap, this is exactly what I always wanted.
1: Hmm. Hmm.
2: The adventure would be like, I mean, when I was 14, getting into squash in Santa Barbara, we hosted a young and rising talent who is still performing well, which is crazy to me, uh, Sean Deliaire from Canada. And he was, I think, 19 or something and I was 14 and we hosted him and I just remember hearing stories like, like that, you know, hmm. him being in random places in the world playing squash. And I was you know set my sights on doing it, and here was a guy you know i was 21, twenty one twenty twenty one years old, and someone was giving me that offer and I ultimately you know said no because I needed to get better and finish college and things like that, but it really sparked that voice inside of me,
1: yeah, it's amazing the serendipity of travel and and how that can cross over with squash and and you know meeting people and um you know, not only getting exercise, uh, but you know, the the friendships that you can form because of the, um, the common, commonality of, of, of both of us Oh,
2: totally. I think there's a huge thing that people get scared about, which is this unknown. When they travel or start a new job or whatever it may be, but for me, it was like, what a great opportunity to bump into a lot of cool people and have this adventure. It was still scary, but it was worth doing it because I knew yeah. things would come out of it that I could never expect. And one of them was going to Bucharest for me. Right. Right. Uh,
1: and and so uh, years later, you um, uh, you know you have the dream and you make the jump and you you quit your job and and, and you go. Uh, uh, out on the on the PSA World Tour uh, full time. Um, tell me uh, a little bit about that first tournament. You know what? I we did an article about you a couple years ago. This amazing math. You know, 18 months and 47 countries, and you went all around the world. Um, and uh, tell, tell us about the first uh, the first tournaments were in, in New Zealand um, when you were you know heading out full time.
2: Yeah, well, the, the piece you all did, I think, certainly captured it really well. It was it was very memorable uh, doing that with you all right when I was coming off the tour. But to back up, the first match I played in was, I think I landed on, like, a Friday, and I got picked up by Glenn Wilson, uh, who some of you may know the name, yep. former assistant coach at Dartmouth College, now the, the, the New Zealand men's national team uh, and women's national team coach. And... Glenn took me in, fed me. You know, he, he, he walked me through kind of the tournaments coming up. And then I was on my way, and I think the next day or two days later, I played in a local club match as the pro position for a team. It was a club in Round Oak, I think we want to say, but it was, it was a club in, in Auckland, and mm-hmm. they, they had a spot to have a pro player. So here I was like 48 hours ago, I was at, you know, I was in finance and working a desk job, and now I was a pro player for this, like, you know, this local club. And, I mean, the poor guys, they probably thought they were getting, you know, on or Rami or, you know, and then I show up. Uh, so that was interesting. But I remember they had me go against um, the number one player from Qatar, who is now, you know, a top 50 player and at the time was 75. And it was like a reintroduction of squash. I just remember thinking, please let this not look too embarrassing. You know, <laughs> it's the only hope. Uh, it was really, really, it was Abdul Al-Tamimi. And, yeah. I, you know, he certainly doesn't remember the match, but I just remember thinking, don't make this too embarrassing. And, uh, and I think I, you know, I think I maybe succeeded there. And then I think a week later I played my first tournament and I actually won my first match, which was completely surreal. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you must have felt a little nervous uh, when you
1: finally started, and and, and you, it sounds like you kind of got thrown in right into the deep end.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I felt like, like most people do when they make any sort of change into a new thing. I, there's a bit of an imposter syndrome. What mm-hmm. I mean by that is it was like, well, who am I to be taking this pro spot, and someone's going to say, you know, to someone to tip me off to say, this guy's an imposter. You know, at some point it's going to be, the whole ruse is going to be up.
1: Right. But it never never did, and and off you were. I mean, you know, it's just an extraordinary amount of travel. Uh, um, And uh, I think we calculated 24 uh, PSA tournaments, all these clinics, exhibitions, um, league matches like you just mentioned. Uh, um so tell tell us some of the uh some of the highlights and the lowlights of uh of, of all all that travel. I mean you went to every continent and, and, and really uh you know played uh played everywhere. So um what were some of the highlights um squash wise you know related to the squash at least?
2: Well I think one of them would have to be when I was in my first month while in New Zealand I met a a a woman while asking for directions whose father is now actually in my book, You Know, That's Not a Small World. And the father is a former aquarium director for the United Kingdom. And he had a friend who lived, you know, he worked, that worked for him in Dubai because he used to set up the aquarium in Dubai. And then lo and behold, I got into the Dubai tournament, which was the Dubai Cup. And it was a 25K tournament. I ended up showing up the night before it started, and stayed on this guy's couch, this friend of, father of the woman I met in, in New Zealand. He barely knew who I was. I remember waking up and it was um, a very, it was a neighborhood with massive compound. And it was it was entirely Filipino. It was a large Filipino immigrant community. And then I woke up on his couch. And I remember his wife was making breakfast, like a traditional Filipino stew with fish and all these other things. and. I was trying to explain why I was there, and she just smiled, and she said, it's okay, Uh, you know, my husband woke me up last night when he picked you up and came back to the, you know, apartment, because I think I got in at 3 in the morning, and the the husband said, you know, this is Mike, he's on the couch, but it's okay, he's a friend of Juan's, and Juan was the person I met six months earlier, and I ended up that day having, like, a killer three-game match that I won, and then winning in five the next day against an Egyptian teenager to qualify for the main draw of the Dubai Cup, which was just an incredible highlight for me.
1: Wow. 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 Yeah, it sounds like um, one of the things uh, that you kept on bouncing around and through friends of friends and and kind of making your way. Um, I remember you told me that you only spent maybe one night in a hotel in, you know, these 47 countries and a year and a half, you were, you know, you were always staying with a friend of a friend. And, uh know, I think one time or maybe more, maybe a couple of nights, three nights, you you slept actually at, just, at a squash club.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I slept so, so in, a in, I in a squash club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got very good at sleeping in odd places. I slept in Barcelona in the airport. I slept in... I want to make sure I get it. Serbia in a squash club in Belgrade, Serbia. I slept on a bench uh, outside of one of the courts. Uh, you know, it was a surreal way to live. And so, so you,
1: you didn't want to sleep inside the court. You felt like it would be more comfortable just outside.
2: That's a great question, Jim. I get that a lot. And uh, <laughs> uh, the funny part about that is I. There was a it was a restaurant slash bar outside of the courts, and there was cushions on the lounge area, uh, kind of seating arrangement. So I, I used those and made a little fort for myself. <laughs> the problem with that, though, if we're getting into the nitty gritty here, is that there was a some sort of fluorescent lit um, kind of beer sign, and then a, a fridge that you know they obviously don't expect you to be sleeping there, so it was. It never went off. Right. It, uh, the lights were on the whole night, but that was the least of my concerns. Uh, what about, about in, it? in
1: Brazil and Australia? You've got them up there as well, right? That's actually right.
2: In Brazil, the office manager to the squad, the, the, my friend was the number one player in Brazil, Manuel Pereira, nicest guy in the world. He had three like, outdoor courts. I mean, they're like classic outdoor squash courts, open aired, mm-hmm. stucco cement. It was just unbelievable. And next to one of them, there was a closed roof and there was a, a squash office and you could take a ladder up on one side of the, the, the room and there was a loft. And so there was a, enough room for bed, a tiny shower and a toilet, and then that was it. So I lived I lived there for like... I want to say a few weeks, at least a week. And I remember writing down everything I had with me because I was so happy. It was like the happiest I'd ever been. I mean, I wasn't the happiest, but I was just so content. And I had like 10 things with me. So there was something poetic there, I think. Um, From there, I ended up sleeping, maybe it was right before, right after. I think it was right after. Maybe right before. I slept in a town called Coffs Harbor. They had bunk beds. Put in for the squash players uh, in their squash center. So underneath the courts there was, a, I believe, like a, an all-purpose room and there was bunk beds and we could sleep there. Uh, and that was life on tour.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, at the very top level, these guys are, everybody's staying in hotels and it's you know, pretty nice. Um, but down, uh, down where you were playing in the, you know, the 20K, 10K five K events it's uh, it's
2: definitely a different story. Yeah. It was um if you could make it in the through qualifying you got, you know, the hotel usually. But otherwise you were on your own.
1: No. No. Um you played in some pretty uh out of the way uh places, you know, uh countries that aren't um well known for their squash and uh Um, so, uh, you played in Paraguay, um, and, uh, and throughout, uh, South America. Um, any, any stories from, uh, uh, from there?
2: Yes. I remember playing in Resistencia, which is in the northeast of Argentina. And on the way from there, the next tournament, which was in Asuncion, Paraguay, we took a bus. But was given basically a lot of trouble at the border, where they told me that I needed some sort of, you know, it's like the classic: I've left Argentina, I'm not allowed in Paraguay, I don't have some visa, but if I pay a hundred bucks, somehow it'll all work out. (laughs)
1: Right, right.
2: And so I, you know, was luckily I was helped by a guy behind me spoke perfect English, grew up in Miami, went to the University of Miami in Florida and happened to just be behind me in line to get through the visa process. So he really helped me get through. But then more trouble ensued later when I was trying to leave Paraguay because I was going back to my sister's wedding in New York and I got held up because obviously the visa that I got at the bus station was not a real legit thing. Right. And then it was like, well, how have you been in this country you know, for this long? And then there was another miraculously charged $100 fee that I needed to, you know, get through to, to leave. So it was just, it was hysterical, but I don't regret it for a second. I mean, it was never, I was never in danger, and, and, and I just loved it. I mean, I played in Chile with, um, with a friend of mine who uh, was actually a, someone I met through, um, through work. He was my old boss's college, our business school classmate, living in Santiago, who's a squash nut, and he had me stay with his family. They couldn't have been nicer. It was just unbelievably gr- gracious people. Um, in Argentina with Fernando Rocha's family, uh, mm-hmm. those who know her, she's an assistant pro at the University Club and was a Trinity All-Star. And, you know, I yeah. stayed with her family and trained with her community players there for weeks and weeks, and, um, and then in Brazil with Manuel. And uh, it was just – it was an incredible way to see the world. I mean, it really – it was life changing you know just like just like Dalmatian.
1: you had the uh, i think the seven degrees of separation to your host in paraguay the it was uh your hosts were uh worked for the wife of a friend of a friend of a friend of uh one of your cousin's husbands
2: <laughs> yeah so my cousin's husband yeah my cousin's husband and I were on a trip with his friend who is uh i believe from Argentina. And I was about a month away from going back on tour. I was back home for the holidays. And then he said, well, I know someone, you know, from work who's friends to this and this and that. I mean, it was it was probably nine degrees of separation, but ended up staying with this amazing family and still in touch. Um,
1: I, I remember you saying something about going to, um, was it Tahiti or New Caledonia, uh, somewhere sort of in the in the Pacific?
2: Mm-hmm. So, another great squash legend, Wendy Lawrence. Uh, I ran into her about a week before I left the U.S. to move to New Zealand, and she had told me about how she played in Fiji, and I ended up looking up Fiji squash that night at work, and the Tahiti squash open came up. And I think it was the first or second year they'd done it. No one had ever been from America, and I just decided I would do it. I emailed the guy, and then, like, two weeks later, in between my pro tournaments, I went to Tahiti and played their national tournament. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, people were putting GoPros on the windows of the core, the back glass, like asking me for autographs. It was like, it was really fun. I mean, it was a different world. And then, and then later was in France about two months later and had to go back to Australia. And the French host I had was a French chef named Jacques and his... uh Cousin was visiting, so we had a birthday party for her because it was her birthday. And she lived in New Caledonia, which is like, you know, if you get lost on the way going to Fiji, you get to New Caledonia, this island in the Pacific where there's a bunch of squash because it's a territory of France. Um, uh, Terry Linku, bunch of other guys have been down there, it's awesome.
1: Right. But I anyway, knew
2: I got invited through her, and two weeks later I was on, you know, the Big Island. If there's a Big Island of New Caledonia, and hanging out.
1: Wow. Wow. You um, you spent some time in um, in uh, Morocco and also in Southern Africa, um, South Africa and Zambia and Zimbabwe. What was that like?
2: Morocco is a different world, for sure. That was a stopover on the way from Brazil to get to Barcelona to train with a the player there. And I ended up meeting a couple travelers, and they invited me on their holiday break plan. And... We ended up all caravanning to a beach town, but it took about a seven hour bus ride through the desert to get there. Um, best food I've ever, I feel like I've ever had, maybe tied to Japan, and and just a different world. You know, I certainly, obviously, um, a lot of cultural differences and religious differences and all that, but, but worth experiencing. And then Southern Africa was just paradise. It actually reminded me of Santa Barbara, where I grew up, you know, beautiful. I was in Cape Town, it was picturesque super scenic, very dramatic landscape, great people. I ended up staying there with them for a month with my sister. So, you know, really had an unbelievable experience there. Um,
1: and uh, you played like seemingly in every possible country in Europe. Um, uh, some some countries that, that uh, are off the beaten track squash wise, um, the Baltic, uh, Countries and and somewhere. so forth. Uh, so, what are some of your memories of uh, of playing in Europe?
2: Yeah, if you want to talk about off the beaten track, I don't know if anyone listening to this show has ever played in Moldova before That's me. Right. <laughs> uh, so I I, I I I diplomatically embraced the squash community of Moldova. Uh, I played in Lithuania. I'm part Lithuanian. I ended up staying with an amazing couple. This is really funny and. It was only like twenty people playing Lithuania. And so the guy who runs the Federation, he couldn't host me, but he's like, Well, I'll ask around. And some guy named Domas said he could take me in. So I'm standing in this guy's kitchen and I'm like same age as him. He hadn't said much and I was, you know, used to not really being in places where English was you know speaking, spoken fluently. So I'm like sign languaging out. I'm from California in the United States. I play squash. And then he's kind of watching and smiles a little bit as I explain and stays patiently, you know, nodding. And then I said, you know, where are you from? And he looks at me and he smiles and he says, well, I grew up in the States and went to Middlebury College. <laughs> <laughs> and I just lost it. And and the crazy story on that story is that he and his girlfriend had just gotten engaged And we joked about how I could officiate the wedding because I had just officiated my sister's wedding. And about a year later, I came back and I officiated their wedding. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. You played in Andorra. I did. I got into that tournament. Andorra is this country in the border of kind of on the way to the Alps. It's a tax haven, a small small country. And got into the tournament the night before it started, the morning before it started, took the earliest flight to get to Barcelona and then found a bus and then like a mini bus to get all the way up to the mountains. And it was one of those things where the tournament organizers had a lot of resources. It was at a resort off season. So they, they gave everyone kind of, uh, you know, a a room or two basically overlooking the Alps. It It was absolutely unbelievable. And the first night I went to watch a paddle tennis game and I brought a friend with me and I introduced him to the person that I had met earlier in the day. And they are now living together in London three, four years later. They're, they are like madly in love. So I feel like, I, you know, a lot of things was just life happening and me just going through it in these unique ways. Right,
1: right. Yeah, and forming these friendships that uh, that last beyond
2: the, uh,
1: the initial trip.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I just heard from that guy's father today by email. I mean, it's just it says so much. I think about the squash community we live in. A, in this world where everyone is truly not that far from each other, and, and I think that's just so special that you you know you can make these dreams come true like people did for me. Yeah.
1: Since um, you stepped off the tour um, uh, in uh, the beginning of 2016, so almost two years now. But, you know, with the kind of planes, you had moved around so much, um, you know, all these different countries, taking, you know, over 100 airplane flights, um, you know, all of a sudden you're not taking any flights, right? Like, what, what, did you have sort of a, you know,
2: re-entry uh, problem? Yeah, I mean, I think it was less, I think I was pretty tired of traveling by that point. I think I had done it, you know, I, I felt like I... At some point, it switched, and I, I was traveling just to travel mm-hmm. and then I think for me, what you know what it was was just not knowing exactly what was next. It was really hard to come back in and reintegrate, you know, having had so many interesting life experiences, but now just being like, "Well, okay, am I just a normal person, again? do I have to push that stuff into a closet and pretend it didn't happen?" It was very very hard for me to think of that you know as as the next step where. You know, I really had to form a new identity, but but it was hard. You know, I didn't know exactly know what I was going to get back into. I didn't know if I was going to you know apply for a job. Unfortunately, I had worked for a while you know before, but it was still very
1: scary. Right, right, yeah. You're trying to integrate, you know, who you were before you had it, had it out, and then who who you sort of became uh, in this uh, in this couple of years.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think ultimately what pushed me into starting when to jump was. I didn't want to let go of all that adventure and excitement and, and learning that I had around my own pursuit of a passion.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. This is a way to kind of uh, combine it or, or stay in it. Um, so, um, totally. when to jump, um, the, the, you got a podcast, you've got the, the book, uh, uh, um, coming out and, and, um, all kinds of things how how is your squash game how is your how's your squash life are you uh you know able to play at all are you are you still uh you know are you playing league like you know where where are you squash lives
2: yeah you know in san francisco i'm probably less on it as i'd like to be uh just because it's there's not as i you know i'm still figuring out where squash can play a regular role in my life but I still play. I play with Ashlyn Blake, who's, uh, you know, Irish uh, women's national champion. I play with, um, you know, Sam. I'm going to play with Sam Gould, who's at Stanford and played the tour a bit. Charlie Johnson's out here, et cetera. Uh, Nick Talbot, you know, down at Stanford. But, it, that you know, that's been just more, you know, ad hoc than I'd probably want. When I'm in New York, where I've been for a bit, you know, for travel with work and everything, and obviously a lot of reasons to be out there. I play all the time. You know, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. always playing when I'm there. And and for me, it's great. So when I'm not playing squash, I'm usually training on doing some circuit and kind of what would be akin to off-season travel, uh, off-season workout stuff. And so I actually feel like when I do get on the court, I you know, I've definitely dropped off from where I was playing at the best of my, you know, tour days, but I feel really good about, you know, that I'm in, I'm in shape. I can cover the court well. You know, the strokes are decently still there. You know, it's still—it's mm-hmm. gonna be a game I play the rest of my life.
1: Are you thinking of uh, playing tournaments? Uh, you know, tournaments, other singles or doubles, or yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of, right.
2: Yeah, I haven't played anything, any serious doubles yet. I know that everyone kind of clamors for that. I'll play with Buzz Doherty uh, in Brooklyn at the Heights Casino, which is a blast when, when I'm over with them. Uh, and Buzz and Lizanne, you know, they're big squash folks, and that's great to get into it. But I haven't done that kind of regularly. Um, I think that's probably the next, you know, I'd like to play singles a bit more before going straight to dubs.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we, you know, you started out, uh, uh, you got your ranking going, and, and and you topped out at 119, which is you know, I am mean, extremely remarkable, right? A guy who started playing squash at 13, and, you know, it's an amazing um, story. Uh, uh, not only where you played, but, you know, how you played. And, and uh, um, you know, 115, like, you, you should still be playing. Yeah,
2: well, um, I actually think it was 112.
1: I'm oh, sorry, <laughs> 112
2: was the highest you got? Yeah, well,
1: you are. I mean, you, counting. Almost, you almost cracked uh, cracked a hundred, right? In only yeah. uh, a couple of years, so um, yeah, we want to see you out there still.
2: So. Yeah, no, I mean, I love I love to play, and I was, I had a lot of good luck and some support along the way. I I think um, you know that competitive edge never leaves me. I, I absolutely, you know, in some ways, it just it ignites even more just the fact that. There's so few ways you can get out and have that experience.
0: You yeah. know,
2: playing a competitive pursuit, you know, and, and sweating hard and working hard in forty five minutes and squash. So, you know, I it, it hopefully will continue at, at some top level, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: um, you're certainly gonna be traveling a lot, um in the next couple weeks, next couple months, so. With the book and and the whole um, the whole movement the whole when to Jump movement so are are you uh, are you just gonna be around in the East Coast or what are your what are your travel plans?
2: Yep, so the book comes out January 9th. Folks can head to Wende Jump uh, to see more on that. They can pre order things like that. Um, we have a, a, a forward from Cheryl Sandberg, uh, COO, on of Facebook, founder of Lean In, and then you know stories that, you know, run the gamut of all different folks from 44, I believe, different perspectives. Uh, And then my own story, you know, uh, and more on what I just kind of was was describing to you and this adventure, but also the planning behind it, all the nitty-gritty that went into it. And, uh, you know, when the book comes out, we'll be in San Francisco for a public event with Cheryl that night. And then on the 10th in New York through the 15th, And then Boston, the 16th, 17th, D.C., um, 18th and 19th, uh, London at the end of January, um, Australia in early February, and Sydney, Australia, um, and then going to Dubai in March. And so a lot of action, and people can head to the website for the tour gates and tickets to all that stuff. But, you know, I'd love to see folks from the squash community come out. It it really is, you know, for me, a, a small tribute to the squash world and one that I'm very thankful to be able to do.
0: Outside the glass, we'd like to thank squashproshop.com. Everybody who's been a part of our podcast these past two years, and um, in particular, Grant Irving, who uh, has been our executive producer and uh, been able to put everything together no matter how badly we we record it. Hope you uh, enjoyed this episode with Mike. Next month, we have a a really interesting conversation with the the world-famous staff photographer of every magazine, uh, Steve Line.